Our sermon scripture reading this morning is from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. We're going to pray, and as I pray a prayer of supplication, I want to draw to your attention that Early this morning, Janice Cox was found passed from life to death to eternal life. So she's now in the presence of our Savior about 12 days after her husband Frank passed away. So we want to pray for the Cox family and ask for God to help them at this time of loss and as they go through the grieving and the difficulty of this transition. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning recognizing that you are the Lord of life. And we are gathered this morning as those who are dependent upon you for eternal life. And Father, we see that you have provided eternal life for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we have heard the news that Janice Cox has passed from life to death to eternal life, there's no doubt surprise in our hearts that this has come so soon on the heels of Frank having passed 12 days ago. And God, we are grateful that both Frank and Janice are believers in Jesus Christ, and that this death is not the end, but it is actually a beginning. It's the beginning of eternity with you. So God, we rejoice that they have died in repentance and faith, but that they are also alive unto the glory of God as they are now in your presence. And Father, we pray for their family as their family processes this news and deals with this loss. Father, we ask that you would give them much grace in the hours and days ahead as they begin to plan a second funeral. And God, help this to be a time not only of grieving, but a time of reflecting as they consider the life that their parents lived and their grandparents lived. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done over the hours and days ahead. And I pray that you would continue faith in Frank and Janice's family and that this would be something that has been passed on to their children and to their grandchildren and others who may come after them. Father, we put ourselves under your care this morning, knowing that life is but a vapor, and recognizing that none of us are guaranteed of tomorrow. 
All we have is today and the days that have come before today. But none of us can presume that tomorrow will happen because you could take any of our lives at any time. So Father, help us to hold that reality not as a sobering warning that we're scared of what may come tomorrow, but help us instead to live a full life and anticipation of what you are going to do, recognizing that our lives are but mere living sacrifices as we have time on this earth. And help us to identify with what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So Father, this morning, the Coxes have gained as they have come into your presence. And we rejoice with you over their salvation and over their destination with you in heaven. And we pray for ourselves that you would give us the grace to persevere in repentance and faith until that appointed time when you will call us into your presence as well. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Last week, I drew our attention to chapter 1, and I dove right into the middle of the chapter where the Apostle Paul is declaring the supremacy of Christ over all things. And I showed you last week from those verses that Christ is supreme over creation, that he is supreme over the church, and he's also supreme over your sin. This morning, I'm going to fast forward a little bit into the middle of chapter 2. And I want us to see in verses 6 through 15 how Paul brings this argument of the supremacy of Christ to a conclusion by showing us the sufficiency of Christ. So there's the supremacy of Christ, and there's also the sufficiency of Christ. In the verses that I'm passing over in the middle, the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians of his message and of the gospel that he had been called to declare and preach everywhere to people that would come to Christ. As we look at verse 6 through verse 15, we're going to see that Paul's focus is not so much on him as being the messenger, but it's on the content of the message that God has equipped him, enabled him, and sent him to declare to all that would listen. And Paul wants the believers in Colossae, and he wants us to persevere in the gospel. We live in a world in which there are temptations everywhere to walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not uncommon for people to try to reject Christ or the church and yet cling to some values that they perceive to be beneficial to themselves. Several years ago, I was doing man-on-the-street interviews with complete strangers, and I was going up and talking to them about the gospel of Christ. And as someone who's not super outgoing in the sense that I just like to go and start a confrontational-style conversation, I was worried about how these interviews would go, but I had prepared several questions that I would ask people and just let them respond without passing judgment and just try to get some perspective of what they thought. Well, one of the questions that I asked is, what do you think it means to be a Christian in the 21st century? And I was asking this to complete strangers, not churched people. I was in a busy part of town where there were a lot of pedestrians and there were many people to choose from. Some didn't want to talk to me and others were happy to spend a few minutes. 
And when I ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century, you can imagine the diversity of answers that I received. There are several that I won't report to you, but the one that I want to share to you that fit in with my sermon this morning is there were a pair of elderly ladies that I talked to, and they were so gracious to stop and spend a few minutes talking. And when I asked them that question, they said, well, to be a Christian just means to be a good person. It means to have good morals and to be people that are pleasant. And I wanted to ask them so many more questions, and I did have more in my deck, but I did ask them, well, how does that relate to Christ and follow, being a follower of Jesus? And they said, well, no, no, don't confuse those things. Being a Christian is just being a good person. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to do that. And in fact, we would even say, and remember, these are elderly ladies. These are not millennials or Gen Zs or whoever comes after Gen Z. But they said, you don't need Christ to be a good person. You don't need the church to be a good person. You can just be a good person. Well, I completely reject their argument and their assertion. Now, granted, you can be good in a sense and moral, but you cannot be right before God apart from Jesus Christ. And that's what the apostle is going to present to us in this passage, because he says there is actually a legal indebtedness that we owe because of our sin. It's not merely a call to reformation that we would be nicer, better citizens in the world, but the call to follow Jesus Christ is the acceptance of a payment for our sin that we could not possibly make on our own. And the apostle Paul wants to press this truth upon the Colossians because already in their early development as Christians and as a local church, there have been false teachers and pressures in their congregation that are trying to push them away from the claims of the gospel, trying to make them nice apart from Jesus. And that is simply not possible. It reminds me of the warning that Jesus gave when he taught the parable of the sower, and he said there are different kinds of seed cast in different places. He said there is some seed that fell on the path, and that seed was quickly snatched up by the birds, and it was carried away. There were other seeds that fell on the rocky ground that immediately sprouted up, but there were no roots. So when the sun came and scorched the plants, they withered and they died. Then there is a third kind of seed that he says fell into the thorny bushes. And when it tried to grow, in spite of its best effort to put roots down, the other weeds choked out the good seed. But there's a fourth kind of seed that fell on the ground, and Jesus said it was the seed that fell on good ground, seed that was able to put its roots down deeply and produce a harvest in spite of the difficulty of the climate. As we look in the letter of Colossians, we're gonna see the Apostle Paul writing to believers that are being sifted like this seed. Some that the seed has been scattered on the path, others that it's seed that's fallen on rocky ground, or yet others where it's seed that is cut root among the thorns. But the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to be the seed on the good soil the seed that perseveres in Jesus Christ and in his gospel. So he says, beginning in verse number six, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. 
The apostle here is first reminding the Colossian Christians that they must continue with Jesus Christ. They must continue with Jesus Christ. They had received the gospel when Epaphras had come through their town preaching the good news of Jesus and calling sinners to repentance and faith. And apparently a good number responded because they started gathering and forming the church at Colossae. But Paul wants them to remember that this profession and this call to the gospel was not something that they did a few months or years ago. But this is something that they must persevere in in an ongoing way. I'm not saying that they needed to be saved over and over again, that they needed to pray the sinner's prayer multiple times. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying instead that they needed to take the gospel to heart and believe it through every phase of their lives. As they would continue in Christ there would be temptations from different sources. In this context, the temptations are from false teachers that come along and say, Jesus is not really God. Jesus was just an angel of some sort. In fact, he was a low-class angel, and let us tell you about the higher-class angels. Let us tell you about those who are better than Jesus. And there were people beginning to believe them. And this had been reported to Paul, and he responds in his letter here with urgency, starting with a prayer of thanksgiving for their conversion in chapter 1, and then begging of God that they would remain in the faith and declaring to the Colossians again the supremacy of Christ. So when he says here, so then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, he's making an indicative statement. He's saying a fact of what had happened. And then he follows it with an imperative plea of saying, continue to live your lives in him. Continue to live your lives in him. In other words, in light of who you now are in Christ, live as if you have Christ. Let the implications of the gospel pour out of your life for all to see that you are a transformed and changed people because of the sovereign work of our Savior, Jesus Paul starts this section by saying, since you have received Jesus Christ, then you ought to walk with him by the way you live your life. Conversion to Christianity always produces a transformed and changed life. And this transformation works out over the course of a lifetime, and it culminates in eternity. If you say that you're a Christian, but you do not abide in Christ— then you should legitimately doubt your profession of faith. In other words, if you're a person who says, yeah, yeah, I made a decision years ago, and I don't think church is all that important. I don't think that being committed to discipleship is necessary for every believer. I don't think that understanding doctrine and what I believe is all that big a deal because there are other people who will worry about that. Then I would challenge you and say, examine your heart and ask God why he has not given you an appetite and desire for those things. Because the ordinary Christian life is one that is marked for a passion for God and his word, and for learning about him, and for sharing that knowledge with other people. Paul even says in chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The idea being that God's work produces an abundant harvest in your life. Otherwise, you should rightly be concerned that you're like the seed 
that fell in the wrong places. The seed that fell on the path or the rocks or among the thorns and the thistles, rather than the seed that fell on the good ground. You see, the Christian life should always be an active pursuit rather than a passive or a plateaued state. Paul asserts that every Christian should be actively growing in their relationship with Jesus and living in greater obedience to him. The evidence of an active, obedient Christian life involves continuing in the gospel that you have received, he says in chapter 1, and overflowing with gratitude, he says here in chapter 2. As we continue living our life with Christ, we must recognize that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. As the Apostle Paul explains here, beginning in verse number 7, he gives four evidences that a person has been changed by the gospel, and that they are walking with Jesus Christ. These four phrases of genuine conversion are related to passive tense verbs. This would indicate that they come by the grace of God rather than our hard work. Nowhere in Paul's writing does he teach a form of work salvation that through some kind of religious rituals, rites, or observances that you can become a Christian. In fact, he rejects that in verse number 16 when he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to certain religious festivals because in verse number 23, he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul wants to show that what changes us is not the external works that we may perform. But what changes us is the inner work of the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ. So look at verse number seven. He says, what is it like to have a life that continues in Christ? Well, first, that we would be rooted in him. That we would be rooted in him. That is, as a Christian, we must recognize that our life is identified in Jesus Christ. That's why we are called Christians or Christ followers, because we have a completely new identity. Yes, we still carry our same names. Your name doesn't change, and you don't get some strange cult name. But your identity completely changes, because you're no longer a dead sinner, but you're now a living saint. You're no longer someone who is enslaved to your sin, but you're now someone who has been liberated by the grace of God's forgiveness. You are grafted into Christ, Paul wrote in Romans. Secondly, here he says you are built up in him. That is, you are connected to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of our faith, and then we are built up in Christ as the body of believers. Jesus is the very strength for our living the Christian life. Notice he doesn't say that we're building ourselves up or that we're climbing our way to God. Instead, he says we are built up in Christ, that it is through his enabling strength that we grow. The thing that the apostle lays out here is that we would be strengthened in the faith that we were taught, strengthened in the faith that we were taught. In other words, as believers who are continuing to live a life in Christ, we would be people who are committed to sound doctrine. 
The faith that they were taught by Epaphras was simply the gospel, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, who came and lived a perfect, sinless life that people were incapable of living. And then he gave that sinless life as a sacrifice so that sinners could have the forgiveness of their sins. We saw that last week in chapter 1, where he said in verse number 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The idea here is that we are strengthened in the faith because we're persevering in the doctrines of grace and Christ. That means Jesus is the sole object of our faith. When someone says, I'm just not sure I have enough faith, they have misplaced the object of their salvation. You can't have enough faith in yourself and your own understanding. Your faith must be sourced in Jesus. He is the object of our faith. So when someone says, I don't have enough faith, they're really talking about themselves. What we ought to say is, I have faith and confidence in Christ because Christ is the basis of my salvation. So we should be rooted in Christ, strengthened in Christ, or rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, and strengthened in the faith. And we should also, fourthly, it says here, be overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. That is, we ought to be the people that are grateful for the grace of God. Not people who are snarled in our own sin and racked with guilt as we're trying to atone for our own wrongdoing. But instead, we should have hearts overflowing with gratitude for the goodness of God to give us the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. After all, Jesus is the source of our thankfulness. Christians ought to be the most thankful people on earth. And not just thankful for their salvation, but thankful for everything in life is a gift. Every moment of every day that God gives us is a gift of his kindness. Because the author of Hebrews says that it is appointed unto people once to die, and after this, the judgment. You see, apart from the saving work of God, all of us deserve to be dead, and all of us deserve damnation. And yet God has chosen to give us salvation from our sin. He's chosen to lift the curse of sin and the guilt that goes with it so that we might have newness of life. So we should be thankful in little things and in large things. We should be the people that are expressing gratitude to others in our church and in our work and in our community. And we should be the people that show Jesus through our thankfulness. If you struggle with being thankful, I would challenge you to look again at the gospel and consider all that you have in Christ Jesus and ask Jesus to show you something to be thankful for and he will show you plenty. Well, as we continue living with Christ and recognize that Jesus changes everything, the Apostle Paul also comes to one of the points of his writing this letter, and that is that Christians have to oppose false teaching about Jesus. Christians have to oppose false teaching about Jesus. In verse number eight, it feels abrupt, but he comes right to his point when he says, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces, spiritual forces of this world, rather than Christ. 
The Apostle Paul knew that the Colossians were being attacked with false teaching. I use the word attacked, but think of it as something more subtle. It wasn't that people were coming out and saying, Epaphras was just wrong. Like, you need to ignore everything Epaphras said and listen to us because we know better. No, instead, they were coming along and challenging what Epaphras taught them by saying the same thing Satan said in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember his question to Eve before she ate of the fruit? His question resonates throughout all of Scripture and into our 21st century when he said, Did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that fruit? Did God really say that Jesus was the Son of God? Did God really say that everyone is corrupted by sin? That there aren't some good people? Did God really say that you can't earn your way to salvation? I mean, look at all the other religions in the world. Did God really say that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of people? Surely there are other Saviors available. All of those questions start with the premise, did God say? And the Apostle Paul is warning here that the Colossians should be on high alert, that no one take them captive. This, ver- this word for captive here is only used here in the New Testament. And the idea is that someone would be imprisoned in their mind. Not a physical prisoner that the false teachers are rounding up Christians and trying to throw them into jails. But the false teachers are trying to take people's minds hostage. And trying to control and manipulate them through wrong doctrine and wrong teaching. In fact, he goes on here to call them hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. Notice he doesn't define what all the hollow and deceptive philosophies are. He doesn't give us all the wrong-headed traditions. He doesn't even name exactly what he means by the elemental spiritual forces, which is a question that some interpreters are wrestling with still. But Paul gives us the broad principles to say that these are exactly the kinds of things that will repeat from generation to generation and will always be a threat to the gospel. You see, the false teachers in Colossae used Christian words and clever phrases to present worldly philosophies that opposed the full deity of Christ and his ability to forgive sins. Paul passionately opposed any philosophies that undermined the deity of Jesus and his supremacy over creation, his supremacy over the church, and his ability to forgive our sins. In fact, in verse number four, Paul acknowledged that false teaching is both deceptive and compelling. Look at verse four. He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. The false teachers attract followers because they distort the truth through deception, or what he says there is fine-sounding arguments. Again, it's that premise to the question that the serpent asked Eve. Did God really say? That sounds like such an innocent question, that it would provoke someone to think more carefully and look more critically at what God has said in the Bible. But what that actually does is that question starts to lead people away from what the Bible says because they will continue by making this assertion. I know it appears to say this, 
but it actually means that. And they will take the scripture in a completely different direction, distorting what it says. And often they will wrap their teaching in the popular sentiments of the day. False teachers love cultural issues because it presents them an opportunity to insert a false gospel. So did you catch what I'm saying there, that they love cultural issues because they can address the cultural issues and just slightly twist the gospel and take Christians off the mission of sharing Jesus Christ and presenting him as the savior of the world from sins. Paul issued a sober warning to the Colossian Christians. False teachers wanted to take them captive. This was not a kid's game. This was not a clever argument for the sake of getting one opposed to the other for a popularity contest. Instead, these philosophers wanted to capture the Colossian Christians and lead them away from Christ. The false teachers surely discussed God. They no doubt talked about the world in which they occupied. And it is certain that they talked about people and their relationship with God. But the false teachers departed from Christian teaching. And we get that because Paul, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, could not say more clearly that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of our sin. Apparently, these were the two areas where the false teachers, the Gnostics, were attacking. You remember last week, I said that the Gnostics said that there was nothing good in the material world. That only good existed in the non-material world. And that once something became material, it was evil. Along that line of thinking, the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus could be the Son of God because how could God become a human being and occupy a body which was clearly evil? In all of the Gnostic teaching and the heresies that have descended from it, there's an attack against the deity of Jesus. They'll make him out to be a mere man. They'll make him out to be a moral teacher. They'll make him out to be a metaphor for salvation, but he cannot be the God-man that he claims to be. And what's further, false teachers always undermine Jesus' ability to forgive sins and say that's just not possible, nor is it important because you can be a good person. It can be like the elderly ladies that I spoke to on the street that said, being a Christian is just being good, having morals, and being nice. That is not what the gospel of Christ teaches at all, because all of our good works are nothing more than filthy, disgusting rags. We bring nothing to God that pleases him apart from the work of Jesus to save us from our sins. Though the false teachers may claim the name of Jesus, and their teaching almost always includes religious sentiments and rituals, the fruit of their teaching inevitably opposes Jesus. Paul takes false teaching so seriously that he warned the Galatian Christians to oppose anyone, including himself, if they taught a different gospel. And yet we live in an era where there are all kinds of gospels taught through popular media. Just turn on religious television and watch for five minutes and listen carefully to what you hear. Often what you hear is a Jesus, not of the Bible, but a Jesus cast in the image of the speaker who is talking about him, or listen to the fruit of their message, which boils down to, we want your money. 
We want you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. So if you'll send us your money, God will send you money from a different direction and make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous like us. And those kinds of things, as much as they may appeal to our carnal desire to be successful, are not the heart and soul of the gospel. In fact, they work against the gospel. In this passage, Paul identifies three common characteristics of false teaching. The first is that false teaching teaches hollow and deceptive philosophies. That is, it offers speculations that depart from the Scripture. It wants answers to questions that the Bible does not address. In our own culture, think about all the conspiracy theories, the political speculation, and the false narratives that get wrapped in Christian lingo but oppose the gospel. As we prepare for a presidential election cycle in 2024, those conspiracy theories and political speculations and false narratives are going to multiply like rabbits. They'll be all over the airwaves through television and the internet and other places, and yet they will work against Christ. Think about how many politicians quote the Bible and oftentimes completely misquote it, misunderstand what they're saying. They quote the Bible because they want to appeal to Christians. They want to give a false gospel that America is more important than the kingdom of Christ. I love America and I'm grateful to be an American, but our hope is in eternity, not just in the political situation. A hollow and deceptive philosophy would be one that leads us away along to the wrong goal and the wrong destination. The right goal and the right destination is faithfulness to Christ, that we would continue in him and walk in obedience to him. A second aspect of false teaching that Paul lays out here is that it depends on human traditions. It depends on human traditions. What are these? Well, Paul specifically at the end of chapter 2 addresses religious practices that the Gentiles may not have been privy to from the Jewish background, some of the rituals and the ceremonies, some of the festivals and holidays. And the false teachers are saying, if you want to be a better person or a better Christian, you need to add these self-denying practices to your faith. But Paul would challenge and remind the Colossians that these things are worthless. Because he says in verse number 23, they're filled with false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. And they are self-imposed worship, but he says they lack any real value. I would challenge you in our current context to evaluate all aesthetic practices. That is, practices where we are trying to beat ourselves up to make ourselves better. Evaluate all legalistic demands that simply say, if you do these certain things, you'll be a better Christian or a good person. And evaluate any human works that seem to make you feel better about your relationship with God. Because your relationship with God depends on Jesus Christ, not on you. That should be liberating because Jesus has given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. He goes on to say here in verse number 10 that in Christ we have been given or we've been brought to fullness. That we can be mature and complete in Jesus. That there's no good work you do that makes Jesus happier with you. I would also add that the natural Christian life that walks with God pursues Christ 
and wants to know his word and wants to understand him better and ends up living for Christ, but not in a way that's living because we're living out of fear, worried that we're going to lose Christ, or living out of guilt that we somehow want to be better with Christ, but we live on the basis of grace, not on the basis of human traditions. The third piece of false teaching that Paul addresses here is he says, false teaching emphasizes the elemental spiritual forces of this world. There is debate about what is meant by the elemental forces. He says it again in verse number 20 when he said, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? The elemental spiritual forces are most likely those non-material forces that exist in our world and our universe. Even those who deny the existence of God deny that there is something transcendent beyond this earthy life that we experience. Think of things as interesting as string theory and all of its weird machinations about how the world is just a series of strings that are strung together in another dimension that we cannot see. Think about all the interest that there is out there about angels or spirits. Consider people's fascination with ghosts, zombies, and aliens. All these things, as interesting as they are to speculate about, demonstrate that there is something beyond our earthly existence, but none of those things cause spiritual enlightenment. We don't need to pursue angels so that we can better understand Christ and the gospel. We don't need to resist spirits or zombies because they are somehow a threat to our faith, but instead we must persevere in Christ. These elemental spiritual forces are recognized by generation after generation and generation. And what I find interesting is where Christianity has gone and where Christianity has converted people and even been able to make some impact on the culture, the interest in those things goes down. But as Christianity departs and gets pushed out, the interest in those things goes up. Our family's headed to, on vacation next week, and we're going to Savannah. And as we've tasked Madeline with doing some research on what we would like to do when we're in Savannah, it's interesting how ghost tours are multiplying like rabbits in Savannah. And why is that? Because Savannah is departed from the gospel of Christ. When we lived in Scotland, you would not believe how many places offered ghost tours of this, that, and the other. And it was crazy to see all of this. But people were gullible to believe it because they were far from Christ. As Christians, don't fall prey to any false teacher that would say, if you really want to have an intimate relationship with God, what you need is a guardian angel. Or what you need is to drive out the ghosts out of your house and make sure that your house is ghost-free. Those kinds of things may catch your interest. They may even catch your imagination. But those things could easily lead you away from Christ. Because Paul is asserting in this passage that just as you received Jesus, continue in Jesus. He didn't say just as you received Jesus through an angel who was running from a ghost. He says, just as you receive Jesus, continue in him alone. As you consider false teaching, there are two simple ways or questions that you can ask about it. And the first is this. 
Does the teaching that you're hearing match what the apostles taught about Jesus Christ and his deity and his ability to forgive sins? If you hear teaching that undermines the deity of Christ, whether it be by denying his or elevating yours to say that you are now an incarnate son or daughter of God, which I have heard on religious broadcasting, then you should run from that teacher because that is error and that is wrong. And if you hear from someone who says, yes, I know the gospel says that your sins can be forgiven, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z, then you should run from that as well because the only thing that forgives our sins is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first question, does the teaching match what the apostles taught about the deity of Christ and his ability to forgive sins? And then the second question, does the resulting behavior of false teaching match what the Holy Spirit empowers believers to be and do? Does the resulting behavior of false teaching match what the Holy Spirit empowers believers to be and to do? Legalism is one of the most pernicious problems in the Christian church, and it's with every generation. Legalism causes us to live in fear, wondering where we stand with God. Am I good enough? Have I done all the right things? Have I pleased a holy God? And yet legalism misses the heart of the gospel that says you've been given everything you need in Christ Jesus. Do the resulting behaviors, whether it be guilt or fear, or whether it be a complete liberty that says, now that I'm a Christian, I can do anything that I want. Either of those attitudes, though opposite in some way, are similar in another. They're similar in that they're living a life defined by someone other than Christ. They're living a life either defined by a legalist or defined by a libertine. But God and the gospel calls us to bear the fruits of righteousness. And I laid out what some of those were from verse number seven. A false teacher cannot produce someone who's rooted and built up in Christ, someone who's strengthened in faith and someone who's overflowing with thanksgiving because false teachers are producing the fruits of unrighteousness that lead away from Christ. Christians are those who continue with Jesus through every part of life because Jesus secondly provides everything we need. Jesus provides everything we need. And I will hit these very quickly. Paul says at the end of this confrontation of the false teaching, verse number nine, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul is reminding the Colossians again in almost a bookend pattern where he began in chapter one, verse number five. Now he is beginning to conclude here in chapter two, verses nine through 15. He says, you have everything you need in Jesus, the son of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man in the form of a human. And it is through Christ that we have been brought to fullness, meaning we have been brought to the forgiveness of our sins and a restored relationship with Jesus. It is Jesus, Paul says, who is the head over every power and every authority. There were no angelic beings or spirits in the non-material world that trumped Jesus as the Gnostics taught but there was Jesus who trumped the spirits and the elemental spiritual forces. The Gnostics did not believe Jesus was God. They believed that Jesus was evil, that he was corrupt, and that he could not be God. And they taught that you and I could only have a relationship with God by passing Jesus and working our way to the spirit beings. 
All of that denied the gospel. Paul says, no, we have everything we need in Jesus. In fact, not only do we have everything we need, but we're also alive with Jesus Christ. Verse number 11, he says, in him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. The false teachers were probably urging Gentile Colossian Christians to receive Jewish circumcision. They were certainly emphasizing other religious practices, such as strict dietary rules and religious holidays. Yet these external physical practices possessed no spiritual benefit because Paul is saying we had everything we needed in Christ. He circumcised our hearts by giving us regeneration. And it is Christ who we have been identified with through baptism, that we have died with Christ to our sins, and we are now alive with Christ to righteousness. The Colossian Christians and any of us who believe have new life through Jesus. And the gospel provides the internal spiritual transformation that we all need for eternal life. When we believe the gospel and we trust Christ to forgive our sins, the debt for our sin is canceled, he says in verse number 14. And the powers of this sinful world are conquered, he says in verse number 18, conquered by a cross. The Gnostic teachers ironically rejected the material world as evil, including human bodies, and yet they emphasized external physical practices to make one right with God. I find that incredible, that they would say, your body's evil, but if you'll work harder with your body, you can make it good. That is not what the gospel is saying at all. The gospel is saying, yes, we're born sinners and we are born condemned in our sin, but we have been given forgiveness through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. We are alive with Christ, he says in verse number 13, and alive because he forgave us all our sins. Prior to repentance and from our sin and our faith in Jesus, Paul describes people as completely dead in our sins. In a sense, to use the modern metaphor, we are truly the walking dead apart from Jesus, in our sins apart from Christ. But when we turn from our sins and we trust Jesus to save us, he forgives us all of our sins and he gives us a new life. And the sin and the guilt that accompany sin are taken away and they are nailed to the cross because Jesus triumphs over them all. Over 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machen who is a New Testament professor, first at Princeton and then at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, explained it powerfully this way. He said, if Christ provides only a part of our salvation, leaving us to provide the rest, then we are still hopeless under the load of sin. Such an attempt to piece out the work of Christ by our own merit, the Apostle Paul saw clearly, is the very essence of unbelief. Christ will do everything or Christ will do nothing. And the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and trust him for all. The words of Machen ring true today because they stuck so closely to what Paul says in the gospel, that Christ will do everything or Christ 
will do nothing. A false teacher who leads us away from the centrality of Jesus, no matter how clever they may sound, no matter how Christianese they may use, is still leading us away from the faith. We live in an era where people that were once the marginal members of society now have a megaphone on social media. And it seems as though Christians are falling by the wayside every minute that there are deconstructionists that are out there radically converting more and more people to abandon the faith. It's been my observation that there are deconstructionists in every generation, that the rate of deconstruction is probably no higher now than it's ever been. They just have more access to getting their message out there. But what I find absolutely intriguing about deconstruction is how evangelistic they all are. They want to convince you that Christianity is wrong and that they have been deceived and that they have been manipulated and even harmed by the teachings of Jesus. And I would just remind you that the teachings of Jesus are the only things that set us free. They are the only things that can disarm the powers and the authorities of this world and make a public spectacle of them. No one will make a public spectacle of Jesus because in eternity, when judgment comes, Jesus will be found to be righteous and right, the ruler over all creation, the church, and our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would help us cling to Jesus. There is no doubt, Father, that as we come this morning, that some of us are struggling with different doubts or fears, wondering about the claims of the gospel, how they could be true. God, there may be others still that are wondering what to do with the guilt that they feel for sin that's been done against them, or maybe the guilt of sin that they themselves have done, and they wonder, can I ever be forgiven of this? Father, I pray whether someone has doubts or fears or whether they're struggling with guilt or shame, I pray that this morning anew in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would refresh and rekindle their faith, that you would remind them that repentance leads to godliness and that repentance alone, not good works or rituals or rites, make us right with you. And Father, I pray this morning that we would have an even clearer sense of how the full deity of Jesus Christ in human form allowed you to come into time and space so that you could initiate a relationship with us. And it was a relationship that is founded on your perfect sinless life that you gave as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be made right with you. So Father, help us amid the different temptations and the different sources of false teaching that may try to draw us away, draw us back to you, and make the gospel sweet. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.